Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. This is a topic that I think is very relevant to everyone's lives. It's not just uh, because we're devotees that, you know, relationships take precedence, but we have relationships in every single interaction that we have in this world. We develop skills and qualities that kind of build upon um, how we see ourselves, how we see others, and ultimately how we view the world that we live in. And I'm very excited um, that we get to have this conversation with Danya Gaurangi uh, Devi Dasi. She has been somebody who um, I've heard speak on this topic um, before, and we'll, we'll go right into it because there's just so many amazing things to be said. Um, I guess we can start out with, you know, you mentioned that you are a second generation devotee. And for those of us who are either coming into Krishna consciousness later on in life, or even those of us who have grown up in this movement, um, there have always been instances that have really like resonated with us as we were growing up. And I was just wondering, you know, specifically in thinking about this topic, what are some of those um, instances in your own growth in Krishna consciousness that have developed your understanding of relationships and how you you view um, a, developing a strong relationship? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a it's a very beautiful question because it's a question that's at the heart of bhakti. Um, I just want to take a moment to thank you uh, for inviting me to speak um, and thank Winston for his AV support. Um, it's very exciting to be sharing this. And, you know, before we begin, I want to make sure to offer my respects to my spiritual master and Srila Prabhupada who have opened the gateways for us to connect with Sri Sri Radha Krishna and take us all the way back home, back to Godhead. Um, so to kind of address your your question, I think, you know, you kind of made the distinction of people who are coming to bhakti a little later in life or people who have grown up in the movement. And I think I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who's considered to have grown up in the movement. Um, even we have that experience of coming to bhakti, like of our own accord, right? Because even if you're, contextually or circumstantially kind of placed in a family of devotees um, still there has to be like some initiative and there has to be some personal commitment that comes up so I think that the most formative experiences for me that really got me thinking like wow okay you know bhakti is something to take seriously and bhakti is something to um, really explore from all angles, not just in terms of sadhana, which is the more kind of regulative practice of chanting and worshiping and serving, um, but also how to incorporate kind of like my whole self, bring my whole self into it. Um, I would have to say it's just the relationships, you know, it was relationships that got me into wanting to know more about relationships, if that makes sense, right? So it was relationships with my teachers and spiritual mentors, relationships with peers or um people, let's say, of my generation or my age group, let's say, that that are so much more advanced than me, you know, really thinking like, wow, if I want to thrive in bhakti, it's going to be so important for me to develop healthy relationships with these people, because these people are the ones that are opening the door for me, and I'm not going to be able to make it through um, 
unless I can really have healthy loving relationships with them. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was kind of my bridge in, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that really does make sense because it's, you know, it, especially your point about like you having to choose to come into bhakti. And then I feel like bhakti in general, it is based in relationships, right? Like you were mentioning, like you have the the relationships with your teachers, with your mentors, with your, your parents, with your, um, you know, friends, with your peers, everybody coming together in practicing Christian consciousness that really builds that bridge into going back home, um, right. you were saying. And even like when you think of our own discipline succession, right, it's like a chain of relationships mm -hmm. leading us all the way back. Um, and I thought that was a really, um, really, really great point. And I was just wondering, you know, thinking about like how the world is now and how um, we don't have that luxury anymore of meeting face to face with with people or like even um, loved ones who may be at risk or something. So we don't want to put them in harm's way so we stay away from them or even the temples aren't really open anymore or if they are then it's like 10 second darshan and then <laughs> you know be on your way um so I was just wondering like how does a person coming into this movement at this time right how do they uh, or how can we as people who are bringing people uh, devotees new devotees in like how does that relationship build? Like, what are some skills? What are some like qualities that we ourselves can develop where it doesn't matter about time or place or circumstance. It's just going to be uh, consistent throughout. Yeah. It's such a relevant question that you're asking because it's um, one of the tenets of bhakti is that it can be practiced uh, under any circumstance. And so now we're being tested to kind of really bring that to life and say, okay, even under these very bizarre circumstances with COVID and travel restrictions and restrictions on meeting in, in large groups, you know, how do we bring bhakti to life when we are such a congregational um, community, right? Everything that we do is, is together. And I think that's a, a big part of what attracts people to bhakti is that people feel disconnected from community. Um, and then they, they go to a kirtan or they go to a Sunday program or they go to a, a scripture reading and, and they're like, wow, I can connect with people here. You know, Bhakti Tirtha Swami, he says, you, you don't join a, a philosophy, you join a community, right? And so during this bizarre time, like, how does that work? So, you know, what, what I find is helpful is, you know, every age has its challenges and has its advantages you know in the Chaitanya Charitamrita or Chaitanya Bhagavat we read about how devotees to to hear from Mahaprabhu from uh, Sri Chaitanya they would travel every year and sometimes multiple times a year everybody from Bengal to Jagannath Puri and it would be like this whole procession of people it would be like a huge caravan of people and they'd have to bring all their relatives and food and places to sleep and it'd be like a whole arrangement you know to do this enormous pilgrimage to hear from the speakers that they wanted to hear from and literally all I have to do nowadays is like roll over in bed pick up my phone 
And then boom, I have like at my fingertips, like literally hundreds of sadhus, you know, speaking on, on the, these super elevated topics. I don't have to figure out where I'm going to sleep or what I'm going to eat or who has to come with me and who's going to watch my house. And, you know, so I think that it's definitely disadvantageous to be under so many restrictions, but Um, are you there? Oops, I think we might be having technical difficulties. Yeah. Sorry, give me one second. Yeah, no worries. She texted you. No, not yet. I think I think she was gonna. She's trying to come back in. She might have lagged out. Yeah, I think she's gonna rejoin. Okay, cool. Yeah. Gosh, she was on a roll. Yeah. <laughs> Some really nice points. Yay! Okay. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. See what happens when you praise the miracles of technology. Technology <laughs> just takes a U-turn and <laughs> punishes you. Um, <laughs> anyway. That, I was like, wow, this is like the irony. Really yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah. Just to kind of, to kind of wrap it up. I, I do think that the advantage is that through technology, we're able to connect, you know, I don't know if maybe you and I would have had, a conversation this year, unless I had traveled to Houston or you had come to Alacha, but you know, through the miracle of technology, here we are and we're hanging out and we get to kind of explore all kinds of spiritual topics together. So I know that it's strange. And I think that on one hand, we have to be very frank about the fact that these are bizarre times and leave room for kind of validating that. Like, yeah, this is not ideal. And we do like to be around devotees and we miss our Kirtan programs and our Prashadam programs and our, you know, all of that. Um, and at the same time, it's a nice way of going very deeply into kind of alternative forms of, of kind of contacting bhakti. So I guess that's what I would say to that. Yeah, that, yeah, as you were speaking, especially about Kirtan, I was just thinking back to Kirtan 50 this year, and how it was very sweet, because we got to hear so many devotees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was incredibly different i was literally in bed yeah. throughout yeah. the program you know? <laughs> and i mean yeah i guess i miss that that closeness even though we're like packed like yeah. like it's just you feel it's like that chain of just devotion just flows through each person yeah. in that room and it just collectively builds and builds and builds um and i guess that kind of brings me you know, to my next question is when we're thinking about developing bhakti within ourselves, right, especially when we are having to connect through Zoom or like connect through virtual classes or um, I guess anything virtually is 2020. Um, but just thinking about that development of bhakti and developing those qualities um, and again, it kind of ties back into relationships in that what are some of those qualities that are important in developing a relationship 
with you know with ourselves we can start from there like with ourselves and then we can move on from with ourselves to with others and then if there's a correlation if there's a if there's a need to really understand ourselves before we can really understand someone else or even understand ourselves to understand god like what are the correlations and what are the qualities that can help develop that mm, yeah it's a powerful question um Well, I would start with saying that some of the main ingredients for healthy self-work are similar, identical, actually, ingredients for healthy spiritual life, mm. right? So we, we usually tend to start, and it's not always said like this in, in traditional counseling, but essentially it is this quality, the foundational quality of humility, right? Because for you to get to a place where you say, okay, let's say I, I need counseling, or I'm even interested in reading books about improving myself or exploring relationships and how to build them there has to be a component of humility because you're saying okay i already know i don't do this perfectly i already know that i may be flawed or maybe i'm bringing baggage in from previous relationships or um i'm scarred from experiences that i've had in childhood or relationships throughout my life so admitting that and kind of coming to terms with that it requires a pretty strong degree of humility and it requires honesty with yourself. Um, and then to be able to actually do the work, whether it's reading literature or confiding in a counselor or therapy, a therapist, there has to be ongoing sincerity and ongoing honesty about, okay, well, you know, this is what I'm bringing to session today, or these are the issues that I want to address by reading this book or doing this work. So As far as ingredients, I would say that, you know, humility is certainly there. You know, we read in the, in the Nectar of Instruction that enthusiasm is a necessary component in our bhakti. Um, and I think that that is also relevant. You know, you, you have to have some hope or some encouragement that you're going to make progress. And so looking forward to the person that you're going to become, even if it feels a bit far away now, that enthusiasm is priceless because it's what keeps you doing the work. It's not easy, but it's kind of like the fuel that keeps you going. Um, you know, certainly patience so that you can be self-forgiving and, you know, and forgiving of others. Because I think the more you work on yourself, the more you realize like, oh, that other person was hurting or, you know, um, that kind of thing. So those are some of the, um, you know, when you ask what are some of the maybe characteristics that, that are helpful. And then the second part of what you were asking, um, it's, it's such an interesting question. It's actually quite layered, but, um, you know, there is one element of self-knowledge and self-work where I really want to bring my best self and improve and evolve as much as I can so that I develop these, ultimately these Vaishnav qualities, sincerity, humility, a good service attitude, kindness, speaking sweetly, uh, being charitable, you know, all of these are, are, are ultimately qualities that help us in our devotional service. And there is only so much work that you're going to be able to do by yourself, right? It's going to develop in relationships. And so um, there's the work that you do you on your own, or maybe with the help of, of a professional or good literature, But it really kind of the, the rubber hits the pavement, so to speak, um, when you're in relationships with other people. And other people will inevitably serve as a mirror of the things that I need to work on, of my strengths, of, you know, that kind of stuff. 
And I'm going to serve as a mirror to others. So being very gentle and being very generous in our relationships is important because if everybody's doing the work, then to an extent, everybody's a little vulnerable, right? Everybody's a little bit kind of soft and malleable and like getting ready to change. And and in doing that, we have to be very careful with one another. And to be careful with another person is about as Vaishnava as it gets, right? Because our, our ultimate um disappointment would be to offend another Vaishnava that's considered like the mad elephant offense you're like growing this beautiful bhakti creeper and it's like you're watering it every day and then you just invite this like insane elephant to just stomp all over your garden you know that is what offending a devotee is so if we really even if our only interest even if it's not necessarily the relationships even if our only interest is to grow that creeper of bhakti still we have to be very careful with each other and to be very careful with each other. It requires a certain level of like relationship skills. So that's kind of how that all ties in together. Yeah. Um, I really, I liked your point about vulnerability and also self-honesty in developing those qualities and then um, how you tied it in with how, you know, essentially humility first of all and then you know patience and enthusiasm all of these are qualities that are built upon the other and so I feel like it also takes like a certain level of purity and when you were talking about you know being a mirror in a relationship I was thinking back to like the Cheto Darpana verse Mm. where all of this stuff that we're going through you know like whether all the anarthas are slowly coming out through our practice of bhakti and so Mm -hmm. like constant like scraping away Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the the mess that's uh that's really inside um and i was really curious to hear your thoughts about what does it mean to be vulnerable in a devotee relationship right because it's so often that devotees like Sometimes we feel like, oh, because you're a devotee or you have a certain level of purity that we kind of externally see, we put you on a pedestal, right? Or like, on the other hand, like if you feel some type of way about your own devotional life, you don't really want to open up to those who might be looking up to you for guidance. So what does it really mean then to be vulnerable and to develop that, that quality? So I, it's a, it's an important thing to consider because even in our own philosophy, there's this component of discernment, Mm. right? That when you are um, exploring devotee relationships, you know, this is in the, in the nectar of devotion, um, you are supposed to develop relationships with those who look up to you with compassion and mercy. Um, You're supposed to develop the relationships of those who are considered to be your peers um, with friendship and with those who are considered to be more developed and advanced than you with a mood of service. And so um, that means that our teachers are encouraging us to not just put all our feelings on blast to anybody wearing T-lock and neck beads. That's not how that is supposed to work at all. you know. And I think that that is an irresponsible use of vulnerability. I think that Um, people swing very far on the pendulum of vulnerability. They'll go like all in and they're just like, kind of like one of those fire hydrants that's like just open (laughs) of their feelings or they're totally shut down and they feel like having emotions or connecting with 
um, your emotional life is sort of in antagonistic towards bhakti or something. So I think that a healthy balance would be, um, you know, starting with finding like-minded association, finding people who have um, a similar mood and similar interests, even in the, you know, bhakti is completely infinite and expansive. There's so many different services or so many different inclinations or so many different personality types. So because there is so much variety, there's room for me to find people that I genuinely identify with and connect with and little by little build relationships where there is safety and there is trust and um, we're able to spend quality time together, even if it's on Zoom. And little by little, you know, I share more and more of myself and allow others to share with me. You know, vulnerability is a two-way street. So a lot of people, when they consider vulnerability, it's how can I share myself? And that's fair as long as you're also creating a safe space for others to share themselves. So I think as we develop this um, muscle of being able to be honest and sincere, we also have to develop the muscle of receiving others' honesty and sincerity. So it's kind of a, it's a reciprocal thing. And that's cool because everything in bhakti is about reciprocation. Um, I think that one, one asterisk that I would put on that is that vulnerability naturally implies discomfort and there's a risk that it's not going to work out great right vulnerability is risky it means that i'm going to take a chance and be honest and be sincere and i don't really i can't really guarantee the result of that right and so what's beautiful is that in in the secular world when you do that you do that as just like a way of being brave and you know even if it kind of fails and you flop and you just pick yourself back up and that's fortifying for your character Certainly it is. But in bhakti, there's this added element of Paramatma is watching you, right? Krishna in the heart is watching you try and build these powerful devotee relationships by bringing your sincere self. So it's not just that, you know, you got knocked down and you got up and that's character fortifying. It is. But on top of that, Krishna sees that you're making a genuine effort to connect with his devotees. And Krishna doesn't love anything more than he loves his devotees. So I think that that can be a very powerful practice for our own bhakti so vulnerability can take on that kind of transcendental tone if we connect it to our devotional service yeah i, I loved everything that you just said right now because yeah. I, <laughs> um, I was thinking also about how as devotees we feel so much guilt right like it might even just be um like a small interaction with somebody else that we might have not perceived as being offensive, but because they're going through something or, you know, we don't really know what another person's going through. So they might take it to another extreme within themselves. And we can't really like perceive that because then, you know, all of a sudden the relationship just becomes lost. I don't know if I'm making Mm -hmm. sense. Um, I might be going Mm -hmm. on a tangent here, but um, I was just thinking about that and how, you know, you were saying that vulnerability is can be fortifying, but there is like a deeper level of connection that's there when you connect it to your own devotional practice. And I feel like on the flip side, there is also this, um, this like almost pressure, right, that can be put on to your devotional life. How do we navigate um, being built up instead of feeling that pressure and just kind of going into our little holes and, 
you know, just isolating, I guess. Yeah, definitely. That's a risk, right? Because so many lifetimes of conditioning and getting so good at being conditioned, um, becoming so accustomed to Maya and our Anartas, you know, who knows how many millions of lifetimes I've been dealing with these impressions in my mind and they create habits and those habits become, you know, my personality and that strengthens my idea of my ego. And it's, it's so deeply rooted. Like it's not a light thing at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so finally you get a chance to, you know, as you said, from the Shikshasakam, like cleanse the mirror And one of the things that you encounter is just like how contaminated that mirror is. It can be totally disheartening. It can be totally disheartening, especially if, you know, some people's bhakti is just like linear. Like they just start devotional service and they just take off and you're like, bye, see you in Vaikuntha. Or, you know, like there's people that have peaks and valleys because that's, that's how it is. You know, now one thing that I like to say when I, when I work with people in counseling is that. If you're really tied to a serious spiritual practice, there's two things. One is that Krishna in the Gita, he promises that once you come under his shelter, he personally takes charge of your destiny, Mm. right? And so you're no longer subject to the three modes of nature. And Prabhupada will sometimes give that example of what it's like to unplug a fan, that it looks like things are still kind of turning, but that's just momentum. It's not that it's plugged in and it's still turning. It's just the momentum of having been turning for, for so long. The other thing is that peaks and valleys down here is not the same as peaks and valleys up here. And I think that because devotees have such an incredibly high standard and we know so many people who are such incredibly advanced sadhus, our bar is just so high, you know, that even when we're going like this, you know, when you're climbing a mountain, you are going up, but you feel a valley and your valley is at like a much higher altitude than your previous valleys, but the slope still feels like downwards. Do you get what I'm saying with the analogy? Yes. So when you're going like this, you're, you could be so hard on yourself on a downward slope, but it's a downward slope at a much higher altitude than you were at previously. Hmm. So I don't think that you can cheerlead your way out of it. I think that you need, we need other devotees to cheerlead for us. Because other devotees will have that perspective and say, you know what, I know that you're having a hard time, but it's really different than the hard time you might have had five or 10 years ago. I see that you're making progress. I see that you're stronger. Or maybe right now you're going through a mess, but I've seen you get through things before, you know, or I I can see your good qualities. So I can't um, kind of overstate the importance of association because that's really, you know, it's, it's, it's the opposite of humility to think I can just do it by myself and just like flip a switch and undo all of my anarthas alone. And, and then just boom, I'm back in, in Goloka Vrindavan. You know, it just, it, it never works that way. None of our acharyas have ever said it works that way. So I don't think, uh, I don't think that's the way to do it. You know, association is going to be everything. Yeah. Um, as you were, a couple of things just came to mind as, as you were speaking, um, especially with the mountain analogy, I was thinking of Simon Sinek. And um, it's just a little bit millennial bashing, so I think I can get away with it. Um, But he was saying how millennials especially, we don't tend to see the climb. We just see like the peak of the mountain and then we expect ourselves to be there instantaneously. And so that climb becomes even more painful for us because when we're climbing, it's great, right? But then when we hit that ditch or when we trip or we fall, whatever it is, like 
that's great really takes a long time to heal uh, because Absolutely. for us, we're just assuming that, oh, this is just like a little bump, we'll get there, you know. Um, and then also when you were talking about community and about how association is so important, I was actually thinking back um, to this past election, and I'm not, I don't mean to get political at all, but this is something that I was really thinking about because as devotees, we're still of this world and everything that happens here affects us in some way. Um, and in your previous talk, you know, you're in Tawako, I'm just going to reference it, um, but you were saying how you are in um, the vehicle of life, right? But you still have to take care of the vehicle of life. You might not be, um, you know, you might be the driver, you might not be the vehicle, but you still have to maintain it. You still have to get gas, all of those good things. Right. Um, so some of which, which thinking about it now, I should do. Um, but <laughs> um, at the point being and thinking about that is, Devotee relationships were so complex and so intense because it's not just on a material level, it's on a spiritual level. And then when you bring things from the material world into that, like, you know, like politics, right? Like with everything that's been going on, there's it's been so polarizing. And even among the devotee communities, there have been such polarizing notions of who's right, who's wrong, um, what your stance should be, what the spiritual stance should be. and um, how do we navigate, not the political side of it, but just like how do we navigate developing relationships um, with those we disagree with um, and those that we might not have like maybe the same value system? Is, is there any point to developing a relationship with someone we don't have that values that we don't share that value system with? Yeah, I think, you know, as Vaishnavas are, ultimately, we're always going to have something in common, even when the other person's um, views seem politically or socially or economically mm. or educationally totally polar opposite than our own. We should all, my hope is that we would all look at the state of the world and go, who does Kali this crazy? Let's get out of here. Right. Right. So if if you're on one side of the spectrum and I'm on the other side of the spectrum, but we can agree on that, then we have a common ground. Mm. Right. And I don't know any devotee, um, right wing or left wing or pro-vax or anti I don't know anybody that couldn't agree with that statement. And so I think that that needs to be the jumping off point of look at how crazy it is that even amongst people who understand a higher spiritual goal, we can so easily slip into animosity um, because I'm identifying with an ism, right? I'm identifying with a, with a temporary label that aligns with certain values as I see they align. And even those values can be aligned with my understanding of spiritual life, you know? So I think that, you know, there's the, you can, you can find a Prabhupada quote for anything. You can find a Prabhupada quote for pro-vax and anti-vax for there is climate change. There's not climate, you know, so um, I think that we need to be careful to uh, uh, Raghunath and Kostuba Prabhu's, they have that Wisdom of the Sages podcast, mm -hmm. and they often quote, they say, keep the main thing, the main thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that that is what's most important. And this is when a, a little bit of self-knowledge really goes a long way, which is what is my level of disturbance at this issue? Mm -hmm. 
And is it going to be worth it for me to continue investing in this debate, in this uh, social media argument, in watching the news, if my level of disturbance is such that I'm unable to focus on my higher goals? Now, this doesn't mean that we're disconnected or that we do like the ostrich thing and we just like bury our head in the sand. That's not practical because ultimately um, we're, we're a movement that wants to share its philosophy or a preaching movement and you can't preach and not know what's going on because then that makes you irrelevant right if i don't know what's go- if i just walk out and i'm like i don't know who's the president i don't know what the you know po- political climate is i don't know what is going on socially i don't know what you know then who's who am i going to get into a conversation with you have to have some common ground and our idea is not to go out there with a megaphone and just like preach the gita out to somebody and then plug our ears and run off and throw a book at somebody and hope they read it like that's not that's not really sharing the philosophy that's just being like really intensely fanatic and and just kind of hoping that by your own effort people don't become devotees that it's totally just krishna's effort um so i think that it's important um, I think that it's necessary for us to know what's going on. But I also have to be honest with myself about my level of disturbance. And then a little bit of self-care comes in. You know, I can read news in print and not get disturbed, but it's very difficult for me to hear the radio. Let's say that's an example. Mm-hmm. Or I can't watch YouTube videos. I have to, you know, just get the news once sent to my email. Or, you know, I can engage in discussions with these devotees, but then with these other devotees, it gets very heated. And I, I notice that I become disturbed and then I'm liable to become offensive or I open myself to be offended, which is also negligent, you know? So it's about being intelligent. I think some critical thinking is, is useful, but also some self-care, right? Which is what are, what are my boundaries? How do I make sure that I don't overextend, um, into these very kind of like, uh, intense kind of riptides of, of social and political issues. Does that help? Or does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, um, it does. And you know, when you were talking about, you know, there's a Prabhupada quote for everything. I was just thinking about it. it might be silly, but uh, I was just thinking, you know, like Prabhupada said, Pepsi is better than Coke, so drink Pepsi. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, coming back to to the point of setting boundaries and being okay with knowing. Uh, your limits and knowing, you know, what is your disturbance within, you know, whichever situation you're in. Um, I think oftentimes when we get into devotional life, when we get into devotee relationships, we feel the sense of wanting to overpromise ourselves and to really just um, dive in like we there's a fear of saying no essentially is I guess what I'm trying to get into is as devotees there is that sense of like oh if it's a service then I have to do it you know mm. Krishna is pulling me towards serving him serving his devotees and even within relationships like having that understanding of what exactly can I hear um so that I myself don't get triggered or what exactly can I say so that another person doesn't get triggered by, you know, the conversation. Um, What are some ways that uh, devotees can go about developing um, that skill of setting boundaries? Yeah, this is a super important topic because I think we are constantly you know because 
we're in the material world, um, the modes of nature are constantly shifting. It's one of the qualities of matter is that it's not static. It's not steady. Mm. Right. And so because it's temporary and because it's flickering, we constantly have to be in a reassessment mm. of how to deal with material nature. It's not like, okay, I come up with my ground rules and this is just how I deal with everything. That's not how that works because the ingredients as such are unstable. You're dealing with an unstable element, the elements of, you know, sattva, rajas, and tamas are unstable by nature. So you you can't be static because nothing of what's happening is static, right? So I think that in, in our spiritual lives, we can be very steady because Krishna consciousness is stable. It's not liable. It's not subject to, you know, the three modes of material nature. So it is, you know, heavy and steady and stable. Um, but everything else we have to have, we have to be fluid. We have to be flexible. And I think, think that boundaries are something that I think people often misinterpret as being very rigid. Okay. I don't do this. I don't talk to that person. I don't go to this place. I don't, you know, um, but boundaries usually have to be um, personal and also somewhat flexible, right? Which means that I, I can allow these to be adjusted if the situation feels right to adjust it. So, um, you know, how do we develop healthy boundaries? I think that for each person, this is going to be a little bit different because each person's context is very unique. And I think that that's an important element to bring into the boundaries conversation, which is, you know, works for you and your family it might not work for me and my family, but it's because we come from different cultures and different upbringings. And, you know, even, uh, you know, do you have siblings? Yeah. How many siblings do you have? Just one, thank God. One. Okay. <laughs> so, but you and your sibling are like two different universes, right? Even though you might've grown up in the same house, um, you have diff totally different experiences of your parents, totally different experiences of school, totally different experiences of each other and of yourselves. Um, what to speak of people who are different than you. So your boundaries are going to look different than your siblings um, and your boundaries are going to look different than mine. So there's no real blanket answer, but um one one way is to look at our spiritual role models mm -hmm. and take note of what their boundaries are like. And if you see some people that that we look up to, you know, I'll say like my some of my spiritual mentors might be like Vaisheshika Prabhu or Radha Swami or my Guru Maharaj, who's Holiness Jayapataka Swami Maharaj or, you know, um, Yamuna Devi, you know, all these like incredible devotees you see and, and they'll share with you what boundaries work for them, what personal kind of commitments they make, what areas in the, their lives they're like very generous um, and they go beyond what's possible, right? With my, my particular spiritual master, you know, his, his boundaries seem like endlessly flexible because he's physically handicapped, but he's, he goes beyond what anyone else thinks he should do and what anyone else could possibly do themselves, even in an able body. Um, and, and Krishna empowers him to do that. So I think, you know, and Bhakti Tirta Swami says, he says, when you have the opportunity to serve and you don't know how, but you do it anyways, that's the moment where empowerment takes place. Because again, you know, Krishna is the witness and he's seeing your sincere desire. And empowerment can occur in that place. So that's the balance to boundaries. The balance to boundaries is I can't stay in a place of fear and call it boundaries. I can't hesitate or hold back or be reticent, right? To retain, to be reticent um, out of fear. 
Yeah. Right. If I'm going to create boundaries, it's because I want to fill the well of taking care of myself, taking care of my family to empower me to further serve. Mm. Not because I'm afraid. Right. So it's, it's basically, if your goal is service, then whether you um, hold back and create a boundary or whether you go forward and take on a challenge, if your mood is, this is so that I can serve more then I think Krishna um, facilitates so it's it's certainly a complex kind of aspect of of self work boundaries, but you know that's that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, I really I liked your your point about how you know Bhakti Tirtha Maharaj saying that empowerment comes when. Can you repeat that again? Sorry, I can't remember the exact wording. I wish that I did. I should memorize it. But he's saying when you have the opportunity to serve, but you don't think you actually have the capacity to do it, but you do it anyways, and you take on the challenge, then that's the moment when empowerment occurs. Right. So when you take on that challenge anyway, and I was just thinking about how it ties back to the, to I guess the start of our conversation where we were talking about really understanding ourselves and developing that relationship with ourselves so that we're able to really set these these boundaries that we're able to know what works for us and what doesn't so that we're taking care of our spiritual health as we, you know, give ourselves um, in devotional life. Um, And, you know, I was also thinking about how sometimes when you're in devotional relationships, giving yourself can be something that's very, very daunting um, either because I guess there can be like two things that come to mind is either because there isn't a level of comfort that's been developed yet within that devotee relationship, or it could just be like discomfort within yourself, like all the insecurities or whatever it is that are there that prevents you from really opening and sharing and developing those strong relationships that ultimately are really what lead you. Um, even with your mentors, even with your spiritual master, even with devotees who you look up to. Um, and so, you know, how, how does that get overcome? especially for someone who is beginning in devotional service and who maybe doesn't feel that, that sense of belonging just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that one, one aspect of that that I do want to address is that for those of us who are already part of the community, who are already part of different services and especially those of us that are visible um, people that, that have a voice or have some sort of responsibility or um, have accepted or take advantage of some sort of privilege in the movement, it's our job to make it safe and welcoming for other people. Right. I think that it, of course, it's going to be daunting for somebody new or for somebody in early development of their bhakti to feel intimidated and to feel out of place and to feel shy to share themselves and to be unsure and be a little embarrassed of what they know and what they don't know and what they can, what they can't do. That's natural. Um, So if you've been in it even just a little longer than that person, then the natural, very Vaishnava thing to do would be to create some space for that person. Mm -hmm. And I think that the responsibility lies in the community and not necessarily in the individual Mm -hmm. to make that happen it's one of the privileges of being a part of a community and one of the responsibilities of being a part in the community 
is if you've been welcomed, then welcome somebody else. And if you weren't welcomed, then even more so, you would want to really roll out the red carpet for for the incoming people because you know how it impacts your spiritual life to not do so. Mm-hmm. So that's one side of it that I that I definitely want to emphasize. Um, the other side is, you know, again, just being real with what you're feeling. If you are feeling shy, if I'm feeling hesitant, if I'm, you know, like I, like you were saying, you know, you're not sure how to give your whole self, um, do what's doable, right? So let's say, you know, I'm just getting into bhakti. I connect to some people. I, you know, I, I like kirtan and, you know, maybe I have some drama or some difficulties going on at home and I don't really know if I can talk about it, but I know I like kirtan. Okay, then just come around to kirtan and let things flow naturally. You might connect with somebody and chat a little bit and someone might open up a conversation about, you know, how, how we've been feeling lately. And I might feel like it's enough and maybe even a stretch to say, you know, I've been feeling really drained lately. Um, I'm hoping that I can kind of level out because it's been really tiring at home. And that's it. I, maybe that's all I can do. And maybe that's all I can do for a few weeks or a few months. Um, then just do that. It's endeavoring with sincerity and doing what feels right and what feels authentic. Um, and little by little kind of growing relationships gently, you know, I think that, um, be, again, because the bar is so high, we have this desire of like accelerated bhakti, you know, ecstatic relationships where I'm just like, you know, hugging everybody and letting them have a window into my heart. And, you know, I think that that's beautiful. And there's also this element of gravity and self-reflection that is also very much a part of bhakti and is exemplified in so many of our teachers and acharyas and um there's like a there's like a nice rhythm to that where you don't go too fast and you don't go too slow and you and you can pray on that you know you can pray to krishna and say you know help me figure out a way to share myself with people in a safe way please krishna guide me to the right association i can't tell you how many people i've spoken with who have told me you know i was praying for the right friend group and eventually i found them i was praying for the right service and i found it i was praying for the right community and i had to try a few communities before i found the one that clicked but the element of prayer was always there right let me ask krishna to to situate me and and trust that yeah that you know I'll find the right people and and it's our hope for those of us who are a part of a community that we can be the right people for anybody that comes along. Mm-hmm. I feel like what you said can just be you know expanded upon for another whole hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially just with centering Krishna right in the middle and I feel like as devotees that's our highest goal it's like we want to have Krishna in the center of every relationship so that Mm. there is nothing else that clouds it because everyone's goal is focused and it's at, at one place and it's pleasing one person and so all of our activities kind of center around that um I, I do realize that it's already like almost um, <laughs> nine o'clock for you, eight o'clock for us. Uh-huh. I wish we had even more time. I yeah. hope, you know, that you can join us again. Um, I would love to. Thank you. Um, and I just like to, you know, open it up to our guests who are here as well. You know, if they have any questions, um, you can type it in the chat or you can also, um, you know, either use the raise hand icon um, and we can just see. Uh, who's there and you can go ahead and ask your question you can unmute ask your question whatever floats your boat um 
you know you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, please feel free. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, um, this is our time. Um, Anji, you seem to be a very giving person. What made you decide to go into counseling and what do you get out of it? Thank you, Prabhu, for your question and for seeing me with uh, the eyes of potential. <laughs> uh, I aspire to be a giving person. Um, I don't know exactly what um, inspired me to get into counseling. I think I've always been passionate about relationships and um, yeah, I, I got my undergrad degree in pre-law, which I think is um, not the most typical route to counseling. I think um, advocating for others, giving a voice to people who feel voiceless, um, finding justice, finding um, advocacy for people. I think that those have always been passions for me. And I realized that um, people have the ability to be self-empowered in uh, if they're given the right opportunity, right? If they're given the right context, if they're given the right community and the right tools, people can become extremely advanced and extremely powerful. And it's, it's a joyful process to watch. So I think that um, in doing that and in studying it, um, it just became more and more interesting to me. And I, I just found myself wanting to serve in this way. And, and um, yeah, I guess that's the long and short of it. It's just very powerful to see people transform. And on a selfish level, seeing others transform gives me hope that I can transform because I'm seeing it up close and I'm seeing people who have struggled with trauma and grief and hardship and disabilities and all kinds of social, political, economic uh, disadvantages. And and they're able to make incredible strides in their personal life and their spiritual life. So when I see it happen for other people, I'm like, okay, there's no excuse. I know it can happen for me if I can work as hard as they work. So that's that's uh, some of like the selfish motivation <laughs> behind that. Uh, Oh. Yes. No, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, hi, Krishna. I, I loved everything that you said. Um, I, I also, I just, I graduated last year from my undergrad in psychology and I would love to go into counseling. Um, and I guess one thing that I, I, that gives me pause, I've, I've also been, I guess, a devotee or an aspiring devotee for a couple of years. And one thing that gives me pause uh, about like going into counseling is sometimes feeling like, how can I advise them or how can I hold the space for someone when sometimes I have trouble like holding the space for myself? Um, so, you know, how, how have you been able to do that and how has Bhakti helped you do that? Uh oh, what happened? Oh no. I can't hear. Oh. oh, wait. I don't know. I don't know how I got muted. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm super excited that you have your undergrad in psych and that you want to go into counseling. It's beautiful work um, if you're into it. So I'm very excited to see you thrive in that. Um, 
I think that um, being a bhakti practitioner is actually a huge advantage because it gives you sort of like a panoramic view of stuff that people are going through. Um, it gives you the ability to kind of zoom out, right, and see a bigger picture. And I think a lot of people are looking for that bigger picture. People, whatever their um, initial reason for coming to counseling, uh, you know, my boyfriend, blah, 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 my kid, blah, 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 my job, blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, the message that they're giving you is I'm looking for meaning in my life. I'm searching for significance. I want to matter. I want that what I do matters. Um, I want to share love. I want to be loved. And so that is universal. And bhakti deals with those universal principles, right? Um, and so I think that you have a huge advantage being able to zoom out like that. And, and you're going to be able to bring in so many different elements of bhakti into your practice. And and you'll you'll put your own flavor into that as a clinician. So it's not like all devotee counselors bring these elements into counseling. That's not how that works. Um, you as a devotee are unique and special and have these incredible strengths and insights. And the way that bhakti works in you, it will necessarily come out in your sessions. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be sharing, you know, Gita verses with your clients, because that may not be appropriate for each setting. But inevitably, whatever Gita wisdom is realized within you will make its way out because that's who you are and who you are, who you are will always be a part of your counseling session. So when you go to school to get your master's or your doctorates, however however far you want to take it, um, they'll tell you that who you are will always be 50% of the counseling relationship. So to the extent that you are, you know, putting work into your spiritual life, it's going to make it out into your work. Not what. Um, and then the second part of your question, which is how do you hold space for others when we're looking for a way to hold space for ourselves. And this is like the question of questions for counselors, bhakti and not bhakti, which is how can I provide for others when I'm an imperfect, flawed, conditioned human being myself? And the reality is, and, and I just mentioned this a few minutes ago, I think it's relevant um, for this question too, is that um, you need that humility to be a good counselor. If you come in there like some hot shot, like I've got it figured out and I'm here to fix you, you're going to do horrible work. <laughs> Your client is going to resent you and you're going to burn out so quick because you're not going to have any perspective. And ultimately, it's not true. Mm -hmm. Right. People will heal and people will thrive if you just sincerely and genuinely hold a caring non-judgmental space for them that's my conviction mm -hmm. people have the strength within themselves so it's not that you're going to do it for them or you're going to come in like some like bhakti wizard and just wave your wand at them. that's weird don't do that you know <laughs> just be you and put whatever skills you have um to work and and again you know keep your prayer alive you be connected to krishna and pray for your clients and pray for your classmates and pray for your professors that's the real deal, you know, that's real spiritual currency that you're dealing with there. So, so all of those things together would be kind of my considerations for, for being a counselor. Mm. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. And I feel, uh, 
the professors that I've had to, or anyone who I've thought, or my own counselor is a devotee. And, um, you know, I can see that humility is the first trait of all of them. Like, you know, the counselor or the the professors that I had to, who were not, you know, didn't, I don't, I don't even know if they knew what Bhakti was, but they were, you could tell that they were very, you know, very humble and they're starting from a ground level with all their clients being very mm. real, like walking with them into it together. So that was very helpful. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Does anybody else have any questions? Now's your time, honestly. I feel like this conversation just flowed so like wonderfully. Usually I'm really <laughs> nervous, but like it was just natural. And this concept, this topic is so, it just resonates with so many people and it resonates with our devotional practice, with our regular lives. So any questions at all that you have, um, please feel free. I don't wanna like monopolize any more time. So I'm gonna put myself on mute. <laughs> okay, I'm seeing here in the chat, um, I suffered spiritual abuse in the movement. Can you talk a little bit about spiritual abuse and how to handle it? So. This is such an important question. Um, definitely an understated, underlooked at topic. And I think that every spiritual community needs to have an ongoing conversation about this because it is crucial to like a healthy, thriving rela uh, relationship with a community and relationships within communities. Um, you know, I'm I'm sorry that you experienced spiritual abuse um you know for those of us who are not familiar with the term it's 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 very difficult because when you come into a spiritual community you know we've talked about vulnerability and surrender and there's so much language in the spiritual in the philosophy which is like surrendering and um serving and you know opening your heart and softening and so there's the highest caliber of vulnerability is in your spiritual life and so for that to be taken advantage of um, verbally, physically, sexually, in terms of power, you know, in any of those ways, it can be so damaging and so hurtful. So certainly it does happen in, in uh, spiritual communities, unfortunately, because we are bringing our anarthas, our flaws and our shortcomings and our conditioning for many lifetimes. And uh, if we don't properly do the work, we are liable to hurt others. And so that is, um, you know, an unfortunate kind of thing that happens. Um, how you recover from it is going to be highly individual, right? Um, it's going to be important that the right support is there. So usually this is a counselor. This is usually, you know, um, safe community members that you can connect with, association that feels good and nourishing and uplifting, friendships that feel deep and real. And then, yeah, probably some, some professional help. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be from someone in your same community. That's kind of a, a, a misunderstanding or like a myth, which is, you know, only somebody of my same faith, let's say, can can help me come out of this. That's not necessarily so. I think that um, trained professionals can always give you the tools if they're uh, available to that. And unfortunately, it can be a slow process. Process, but it's important that whatever part of the philosophy or faith was working for you is still authentic and true, and you can stay connected to that. Um, 
So even if it's a tiny little thing, you know, worshiping a deity or connecting to kirtan or eating prasadam and offering food or, you know, seeing, uh, remembering, you know, the verses where Krishna says, you know, I'm the taste of water, you know, of purifiers, I'm the wind, you know, even small things like being in nature and thinking of those things, making sure that you hang on very tightly to the areas where it still feels safe and it still feels good and nourishing and true um, and building our way back up from there, you know, it can be a slow build, but it's important to to hang on to it if we still feel the conviction that this is the, the path for us, you know. So, you know, it, it's a big topic. It's hard to answer it in just a couple of minutes, but I, I think that that would be kind of the starting place to make sure that you get the right support and that you process it in a, in a safe environment. That was really powerful. Um, yeah, I, I'm mute. <laughs> I have nothing to... <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was it's definitely something that's like very, very personal. And um, thank you for like very eloquently talking about that topic. It's a very difficult topic to really unpack even in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, is there anybody else who would like to ask? I have one. Um so it's kind of a two-part question. Um, I have a very young dog. She's three years old, um, and I'm moving towards getting like a standard order of possession. I I'm not with her mother anymore. So that's mm -hmm. every other weekend. And sort of what the question is, is given that amount of time with the majority of her life being sort of like culturally Christian, but like lived in a secular way, how can I best utilize that time with my child like to impress these sort of like um, bhakti concepts on them. Mm. And then the second part of the question would be like how to do that with due respect to the cultural differences between myself and this, and then like her mother and their extended family, which are all like church of Christ, I think is where they go. And I don't really know anything about that, but um, do you have any advice on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it sounds like it's really important for you to share your experience of bhakti with your daughter. And I think that that's valuable and that's beautiful. And I think that, you know, both families seem to, in some way, value um, spiritual life, even if it comes in, in different packaging and with different practices. Um, and understandably, yeah, the limited time is definitely a consideration. I'll I'll say that, um, you know, Vaisheshika Prabhu, who's one of my spiritual mentors, he often quotes that um, the best preaching is happy devotee. So, you know, and, and I can I can attest to that because growing up, the biggest impressions that have ever been made on me in my spiritual life, even though I was around devotees, um, were people who were happy in their service, people who were practicing joyfully who seemed to really genuinely get something out of what they were doing, whether it was reading Bhagavatam or doing Kirtan or distributing books or cleaning the kitchen, sweeping, you know, taking care of the altar. You know, I could just think of so many different kinds of things I saw, but what always stuck was when people were happily doing it. And there's no arguing with that. You know, even a child of three years old, even, I mean, I have a daughter who's not even one year old. Um, she's 10 months and she can tell when we're having a good time. She can tell when we're happy. She can tell when we're joyful. And she can also tell when we're not. So, um, 
if your daughter is able to see you happily performing any aspect of bhakti, that's the best kind of sharing you can do with her, especially at such a young age where you can't really philosophize, let's say. Um, and then as far as, uh, you know, sharing the time and, and managing the differences in culture, you know, to find common ground. And there's, there's a lot of um, classes and, and uh, content out there, um, especially on the internet, where devotees address the commonalities, let's say, between, uh, you know, the Christian faith and Vaishnava faith and um, the ways in which we kind of can share, you know, common values and common ideals, you know, loving your neighbor, loving God above all else with your heart. And what is it? Your, your mind, your heart, your mind, and your words or something like that. So, you know, it, it could be useful to do a little bit of research and say, okay, well, what are the basic teachings of Christ? What are the basic principles of Christianity? And what in my philosophy can I find in common with that? You know, treating others fairly and with respect, honoring your mother and your father, um, serving your community, being kind to one another, being compassionate, um, you know, that kind of stuff, giving in charity. You know, these are all things that can be shared. So I think especially because your daughter's so young, it could be really cool to find, you know, what are those common values and how do I practice that in a way that resonates with my spirituality? And it, and it definitely doesn't contradict um, Christian thought, even if, you know, the other side of the family doesn't uh, like practice like an Orthodox faith where they have like a lot of, you know, rituals or practices or whatever. Um, still, it can harmonize very nicely with with their principles and values. So obviously, you know, there's, there's more that can be said on that, but those are the two things that kind of came to mind. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, that, you know, I think we could, uh, because it's already 8.11, so we can maybe go into um, announcements and then um, close out the program. If any of you have um, any uh, further questions, um, Mataji, I don't know if uh, you would feel um, comfortable with maybe like giving a, like a contact information for them, or if not, then that's okay as well. Oh, you're on mute. <laughs> I don't know what it is that keeps happening. Okay, so um, yeah, I mean, you can connect with me via social media. You can find me on Facebook, Danyariko. Um, That would probably be the, the best way to reach out to me. And yeah, I'd be happy to, to get feedback um, and stay connected. Thank you again so much for being part of our Sangha and for speaking on such a powerful topic. Uh, and I, I use this word a lot. I just, it, you know, it, it does resonate so many people. And I feel like this conversation is not just limited to those who have attended this call. I feel like this conversation could really benefit so many because what we, like what you were speaking about was just I feel it transcended so many aspects of devotional life in the sense that, you know, how you develop in bhakti and how you grow as a, a person, as a human being in bhakti. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you for having me. You guys have a beautiful sangha and your questions were 
you know, wonderful. One thing that I can appreciate as a counselor is good question asking, because <laughs> that's what we do for a living. So I know a good question asker when I when I see one or a good interviewer, I guess would be more more, more appropriate. So yeah, thank you. And and you know, when when you're a speaker, the the flow of the conversation is as good as a sangha. So it speaks very highly of what you all are doing. And thank you for allowing me to come in and serve in some small way. It's uh, you guys have been very welcoming, and um, it's been really great to have the conversation with you all. You. You're a good representative of Krishna consciousness. Thank you so much. Hi, welcome. Um, Winston, would you like to? Sure. Yeah. And uh, yes, thank you again so much, Tanya Mataji and Sanchari uh, Mataji for a uh, really awesome dialogue. Um, gosh, I mean, like so many, um, hit on so many things, um, you know, as you said, that resonated and, um, you know, just really uh, learned a lot and, you know, looking forward to, uh, you know, having you back, you know, at some point in the future, you know, and staying in touch and, um, yeah, just you know, wish you all the best and you know, hope everyone stays safe uh, during these times. And uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for a wonderful, wonderful class. Um, as we close out for tonight, um, I know it's getting a little bit late for for some of us. Um, just want to thank everyone for joining us as always on on our Friday program. Um, we'll have you know the recording available um, for for you to share if uh, if you feel like you know somebody would. Um, you know, enjoy and, and get something out of, of the discussion. Um, I know um, I certainly would love to forward it to, to some folks. And um, next week, um, we'll have uh, an exciting update on the Bhaktivedanta Research Center um, with Balaram Leela Das um, out of India. So uh, if you are available, please join us again uh, for that wonderful program. And, uh, and we look forward to keeping in touch. Hope you guys have a great weekend and everyone stay safe. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, thank you. Thank you, have a good night Prabhu. Thanks everyone. <laughs>